Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, February 15, 2024. Reaction to the reported death in prison of prominent Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. President Joe Biden says Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. And he urges the U.S. House to pass the Senate pass bill with more aid for Ukraine. We'll also hear from Vice President Kamala Harris, Republican Congressman Michael McCall, and the president of the Free Russia Foundation. U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues David Satterfield says a deal is possible between Israel and Hamas for a ceasefire and release of hostages while negotiations on such a deal continue in Cairo, Egypt. President Biden travels to East Palestine, Ohio, site of last year's toxic train derailment. And the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg talks about the federal response, which he says is still ongoing. Former President Donald Trump is ordered to pay $355 million in penalties for fraudulently overstating his net worth to get better terms on bank loans. The judge in the New York civil fraud case also banned Donald Trump from doing business in New York for three years. His adult sons, Eric and Don Jr., get $4 million penalties and are banned for two years. And Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, announces he is not running for president as a third-party candidate, ending the speculation. He says he doesn't want to be a spoiler. From USA Today, Alexei Navalny, a prominent critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin, who survived a poisoning and spent months in isolation, died in an Arctic Circle maximum security prison, the country's state media reported Friday. The Federal Penitentiary Service of the district where he was being held said that Navalny, 47 years old, felt unwell after he went on a walk and almost immediately lost consciousness. No cause of death was detailed. The prison service said it tried to resuscitate him without success. That's the reporting from USA Today. President Joe Biden made these remarks at the White House. Like millions of people around the world, I'm literally both not surprised and outraged by the news reported death of Alexei Navalny. He bravely stood up uh, to the corruption, the violence, and the, the, all, the, all the bad things that the Putin government was doing. In response, Putin had him poisoned, he had him arrested, he had him prosecuted for fabricated crimes, he sentenced him to prison, he was held in isolation. Even all that didn't stop him from calling out Putin's lies. Even in prison, he was a powerful voice for the truth, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. And he could have lived safely in exile after the assassination attempt on him in 2020, which nearly killed him, I might add. And, but he, uh, he was traveling outside the country at the time. Instead, he returned to Russia. He returned to Russia, knowing he'd likely be imprisoned or even killed if he continued his work. But he did it anyway because he believed so deeply in his country, in Russia. Reports of his death, if they're true, and I have no reason to believe they're not, Russian authorities are going to tell their own story. But make no mistake, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world. Putin does not only target his citizens of other countries, as we've seen in what's going on in Ukraine right now. He also inflicts terrible crimes on his own people. And as people across Russia and around the world are mourning Navalny today because he was so many things that Putin was not. He was brave. He was principled. 
It was dedicated to building a Russia where the rule of law existed and where it applied to everybody. Navalny believed in that Russia, that Russia. He knew it was a cause worth fighting for and obviously even dying for. This tragedy reminds us of the stakes of this moment. We had to provide the funding so Ukraine can keep defending itself against Putin's vicious onslaughts and war crimes. You know, there was a bipartisan Senate vote that passed overwhelmingly in the United States Senate to fund Ukraine. Now, as I've said before, and I mean this in a literal sense, history is watching. History is watching the House of Representatives. The failure to support Ukraine at this critical moment will never be forgotten. President Joe Biden at the White House. The House has started a two-week recess. After his opening statement, the president took a few questions from reporters. Sir, first, was this an assassination? The answer is that we don't know exactly what happened, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was a consequence of something that Putin and his, and his thugs did. And to be clear, you warned Vladimir Putin when you were in Geneva of devastating consequences if Navalny died in Russian custody. What consequences should he and Russia face? That was three years ago. In the meantime, they faced a hell of a lot of consequences. They've lost and or had wounded over 350,000 Russian soldiers. They've made them in a position where they've been subjected to great sanctions across the board, and we're contemplating what else could be done. But the, the, what we were talking about at the time, there were no actions being taken against Russia. And that look all has transpired since then. You're looking at increasing sanctions on Russia right now? We're looking at a whole number of options. That's all I'll say right now. President Biden in the Roosevelt Room of the White House will have more on the death of Alexei Navalny in just a moment. But first, President Biden answered a reporter's question on another issue connected to Russia. The White House confirmed on Thursday that an anti-satellite capability is being developed by Russia. The White House would not say whether the news reports that that capability involve a nuclear weapon are accurate. Here's the question to the president. Sir, how concerned are you about the anti-satellite capability that Russia is developing? And what is your administration planning to do in response? First of all, there is no nuclear threat to the people of America or anywhere else in the world with what Russia is doing at the moment, number one. Number two, anything that they're doing and or they will do relates to satellites and space and damaging those satellites potentially. Number three, I, there is no evidence that they have made a decision to go forward with doing anything in space either. So what we found out, there was a capacity to launch a system into space that could theoretically do something that was damaging. Hadn't happened yet, and uh, my, expect, my, my hope is it will not. President Biden at the White House, his comments and answering the reporter's questions runs about 10 minutes. We have the full video at cspan.org. And now more reaction to the reported death of the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, in prison in Russia. Navalny rose to prominence after he ran for Moscow mayor over a decade ago. He lost to a Vladimir Putin ally, and Navalny said the election was rigged and then began uncovering what he said was massive corruption in the Putin government. Vice President Kamala Harris heard the news of the death as she attended the Munich Security Conference in Germany. We've all just received reports that Alexei Navalny has died in Russia. 
This is, of course, terrible news, which we are working to confirm. My prayers are with his family, including his wife, Yulia, who is with us today. And if confirmed, this would be a further sign of Putin's brutality. Whatever story they tell, let us be clear, Russia is responsible. And we will have more to say on this later. Vice President Kamala Harris at the start of her speech at the Munich Security Conference in Germany, a press release from her office says that she made a forceful case for America's continued global leadership and the Biden-Harris administration's worldview while strongly rejecting the failed ideologies of isolationism, authoritarianism, and unilateralism. She mentioned the Yulia Navalia, the husband of Alexei Navalny. New York Times writes that just hours after her husband was reported dead, she made a dramatic surprise appearance at a gathering of world leaders in Munich on Friday. Taking the stage, she denounced President Vladimir Putin of Russia and vowed that he and his circle will be brought to justice. She told the audience, we cannot believe Putin and his government. They are lying constantly. But if it's true, I would like Putin and all his staff, everybody around him, his government, his friends, I want them to know that they will be punished for what they have done to our country, to my family, and to my husband. They will be brought to justice, and this day will come soon. That from the New York Times. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, also attending the Munich Security Conference, and he spoke to reporters ahead of a meeting with the Indian Minister of External Affairs about the death of Alexei Navalny. We've uh, heard the reports from Russia of Alexei Navalny's death in prison. For more than a decade, Russian government, Putin, have persecuted, poisoned, and imprisoned Alexei Navalny. And now, the reports of his death. First and foremost, if these reports are accurate, our hearts go out to his wife and to his family. Beyond that, his death in a Russian prison and the fixation and fear of one man only underscores the weakness and rot at the heart of the system that Putin has built. Russia is responsible for this. We'll be talking to the many other countries concerned about Alexei Navalny, uh, especially if these reports bear out to be true. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the Munich Security Conference in Germany. U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, putting out a statement that reads in part, Vladimir Putin is a vicious dictator and the world knows he is likely directly responsible for the sudden death of his most prominent political opponent, Alexei Navalny. Putin has shown his willingness to use extreme measures, including the use of radioactive material to attack his enemies and expand his power. In the coming days, as international leaders are meeting in Munich, we must be clear that Putin will be met with united opposition. As Congress debates the best path forward to support Ukraine, the United States and our partners must be using every means available to cut off Putin's ability to fund his unprovoked war in Ukraine and aggression against the Baltic states. Part of the statement from House Speaker Mike Johnson. Congressman Michael McCall, Republican of Texas, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, was asked about the death of Navalny and USA to Ukraine at a reporter's breakfast in Washington, D.C., today hosted by the Christian Science Monitor. Here's the question from that paper's Washington Bureau Chief, Linda Feldman. So I have to start with this morning's news, the apparent death of Alexei Navalny. Um, 
Does this affect the dynamic at all of, of your drive and others to add funding to Ukraine? Just shows yet again what Putin is all about. Yeah. First of all, does that affect? And while there are some who seem to empathize with him and uh, you know show affection for him for Mr. Putin, mm -hmm. I don't. I, I don't. Uh, I, I think that he is. Um, you know, he's a bad actor. Uh, the atrocities, the war crimes he's committed in Ukraine um, on a large scale, uh, you know, abducting all these children and holding them hostage uh, and indoctrinating them is in violation of you know, Geneva Convention and now Navalny, uh, a political prisoner for many years. And um, we've, we have stood up for Navalny. Uh, we've also stood up for the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter. Um, you know, you have one of your own now in a, in a not gulag, but, in a, you know, as a political prisoner of, of Putin and Russia shows you what he demonstrates, what he's capable of doing. Um, it's a it's a sad day. And I hope out of his death will come something to send a message to the world and to the American people about who Mr. Putin really is and not to have this sort of charm offensive that Mr. Putin is somehow a misunderstood man uh, and that his intentions are, are, his intentions are very clear to me. Uh, just like Hitler's were in Mein Kampf, Putin is, it's very clear to, to take over Ukraine, to invade, he'll invade Moldova, he'll, he'll go into Georgia, and then he'll start, um, start to ta attacking in some form or fashion the Baltic nations. He's not stopping at Ukraine. And that's why, uh, just like with Hitler, if we'd stopped him earlier, the blood and treasure we could have saved in my father's war uh, would have been tremendous. And I, I, I just don't think you can discount these dictators and Chairman Xi's as well as he's looking at Taiwan and the Pacific. Congressman Michael McCall, Republican from Texas, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee at a Christian Science Monitor breakfast with reporters from that paper and others. A story from The Hill reads, a bipartisan group of moderate House lawmakers unveiled an emergency funding bill on Friday that includes aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, in addition to border security policy, as centrists seek another option for helping U.S. allies after Republicans threw cold water on the foreign aid package passed by the Senate earlier in the week. The news of Alexei Navalny's death broke as the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington was hosting a previously scheduled program with Russian opposition leaders in exile titled Life After Putin, Potential Scenarios for a Post-Authoritarian Russia. One of the panelists was Natalia Arnaud, president and founder of the Free Russia Foundation. Navalny's lawyers are now en route to the strict regime colony in uh, Yamal and Inetsk region. And um, um, what the Russian authorities did um, happened on Friday. Very, very possible that uh, the lawyers will be allowed to enter the prison only on Monday. And the Russian authorities, whatever they did, will have a lot of time to hide <laughs> any crimes uh, they did. And uh, of course, also we shouldn't, uh, if confirmed, uh, we shouldn't say, uh, like the Kremlin uh, is pushing the narrative that uh, Navalny has died in prison and uh, speaking about blood clots and things like that. 
which is very ridiculous. Uh, in that case, it would be clear that um, the Kremlin's regime and uh, Vladimir Putin personally assassinated Alexei Navalny. And I will never be able to talk in any case about him in the past tense, like I cannot do that about Boris Nemtsov. Uh, for me, he is the most alive person. Um, Alexei Navalny um, is the Russian opposition leader who developed this vision of the beautiful Russia of the future. He is a hero. Uh, he is a symbol of um, Russian resistance, a courage of Russian people. Heroes don't die. Heroes motivate us, as Miriam said, to do more things. I feel very outraged. I feel very angry. Uh, but I know that uh, when me or anybody on my team or anybody in our community feel exhausted, feel nervous breakdown, feel burnouts, whatever, we will always remember about people like Boris Nemtsov, like Anna Politkovskaya, like Natalia Stimirova, like Alexei Navalny, and, and I hope that um, we just, all of us, do a lot to, to change the situation inside Russia, uh, because uh, we do need post-Putin Russia as soon as possible. It's too murderous, too atrocious. Natalia Arnault, president and founder of the Free Russia Foundation at a U.S. Institute of Peace panel with other Russian dissidents. Also there, Jorgen Andrews, State Department fellow at USIP, who said that Russian President Putin's actions against opposition leader Alexei Navalny shows the weakness of authoritarian regimes. With this somber news today, if it turns out to be true, um, you know, it's really a, a reminder of um, just how, as, as has been said, how fearful, how insecure, how brittle uh, an authoritarian uh, regime is and becomes. And uh, it further demonstrates the, the moral and the political bankruptcy of Putin and the system that he has created. Uh, it also reminds us um, that uh, it's important to stay connected to our faith that regimes like this, um, who are this insecure, this weak, this fearful, um, already carry within themselves the seeds of their own destruction. And the, 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 the analogy I like to use is, is a pressure cooker. Uh, regimes like this in their growing insecurity feel the need to close off every little uh, escape valve that lets pressure out of the system. And as they do that, the, the pressure builds and builds inside the pressure cooker. And this leads them to be fearful that any release of pressure, uh, however small, could cause the whole system to, to blow, that the lid would blow off the, the pot. And so um, this is why regimes like this tend to look very, very strong until they're not. It's, it's a cliche, but um, the, the pressure cooker looks stable until the lid blows. And uh, part of the challenge here is since none of us can predict when or exactly how the lid will blow, uh, we try to envision uh, different ways change could come politically in, in, a, in a system like Putin's. Jorgen Andrews, State Department Fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace at today's USIP discussion with dissidents and opposition leaders in exile from Russia. It's titled Life After Putin.
New York Times has been updating the death of Alexei Navalny all day. They have this. President Vladimir Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, told Russian journalists that statements by Western officials that the Kremlin was to blame for Navalny's death were absolutely unacceptable because there's no information about the cause of death. A CNN documentary titled Navalny, released in 2022, included a question to Alexei Navalny about what his message would be if the worst were to happen. If you are killed, if this does happen, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? My message for the uh, situation when I am killed is very simple, not give up. Alexei Navalny in the CNN documentary from two years ago. How this is playing in Russia from the RT website, it's Russian government-funded news. Alexei Navalny collapsed and died on Friday in a prison colony north of the Arctic Circle where he was serving a 19-year sentence for extremist activities. He was 47. In the West, he enjoyed the reputation of a Kremlin critic and Russian opposition leader. In Ukraine, he was denounced as a Russian nationalist. In Russia itself, his legacy is at best complicated. That's how it was reported from RT. This is Washington Today. Turning to the Middle East from Associated Press, five patients in intensive care died after their oxygen ran out in southern Gaza's main hospital that was stormed by Israeli troops, causing chaos for hundreds of staff and wounded people inside, health officials said Friday. Troops were searching the complex where the military said it believes the remains of hostages abducted by Hamas might be located. The raid came after troops had besieged Nasser Hospital in the southern city of Yunis for nearly a week, with staff, patients, and others inside struggling under heavy fire and dwindling supplies, including food and water. The Israeli military said Friday it had detained dozens from the facility, including some it alleged were involved in Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. That was from Associated Press. David Satterfield is U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues. He was interviewed today by Aaron David Miller from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace about the war between Israel and Hamas. And one question was about the reported talks to free hostages held by Hamas in exchange for a multi-week ceasefire. I know you can't talk about the hostage uh, negotiations, <clears throat> let alone the, the uh, nature of the impasse that now separates Israel and Hamas in the negotiations. I'm wondering, though, whether or not uh, Ramadan and Rafa uh, to some degree, have perhaps begun begun to accelerate the calculations of both Israel and Hamas. And I have to remind myself, despite external pressures from any number of quarters, this conflict has been driven. I have to remind myself of this every single day because the Middle East is littered with the remains of great powers who thought wrongly they could impose their wills on smaller ones. That this is the trajectory of this conflict is driven by. Israeli needs and requirements and Hamas's needs and requirements. And that that's a, that's a very difficult proposition, I think, to accept. But is, is it possible to imagine that um, uh, we could be looking at, uh, I know there's been some progress and I know nothing is certain on this score, <clears throat> but has the urgency in your judgment uh, I'm not asking you to comment on the details. It's the urgency of the situation, which is the one factor that usually brings successful negotiations to a close. Has that increased in your judgment? Without going into the details, Aaron, I believe it has. 
I believe, we believe um, that a deal is possible. It's not there yet, uh, but we see it as an achievable thing. Yeah. Uh, there are difficult issues involved in concluding that deal, uh, yeah. but it can be done. And, and look, uh, Hamas has suffered by this military campaign. There is no question that as Israel has advanced, has entered the tunnels, has gotten much better information on uh, leadership structures, the way they worked, uh, they're feeling squeezed. Uh, so, yes, I think there are building pressures. In Israel itself, uh, I think the urgency here is simply a national urgency. People want to see the hostages come out. But I would say they want to see them come out at a price, and there's an understanding there will be a price to be paid, uh, as there have been in previous such situations. But it's a price that has to be commensurate with what is being achieved in terms of, we hope, everyone coming out. David Satterfield, U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues, interviewed today by Aaron David Miller, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Senior Fellow. President Biden saying at his statement and news conference at the White House today that he has spoken with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu multiple times over the past couple of days for at least an hour each time about Rafah, the Gaza border town with a million and a half Palestinians. Jerusalem Post posting at the White House on Friday, President Biden sounded hopeful, yet not entirely confident that Prime Minister Netanyahu won't order a massive land invasion in Rafah. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. It's free and wherever you find your podcasts. ABC News reporting today that Joe Biden is heading to East Palestine, Ohio on Friday to mark one year since a train derailment spilled hazardous materials and toxins into the environment that forced many residents out of their homes. President Biden will be briefed by officials and give remarks on holding Norfolk Southern, the railroad operating the freight train, accountable for the February 3rd, 2023 spill. President Biden faced intense scrutiny for not visiting the Ohio-Pennsylvania border town in the immediate aftermath of the derailment. Former President Donald Trump toured the area just weeks after the incident. He was flanked by East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway and local first responders as he distributed water and supplies. Donald Trump had already announced he was running for the White House again and throughout the trip sought to paint President Biden as ineffective in responding to the crisis. That was from ABC News. On the ride there on Air Force One, the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, Michael Regan, took a question about why it's taken a year. Can you help us understand why it took so long for the president to make this trip? Was there a specific reason? Was his own health considered in making this decision? You know, what I would say is the president has been laser focused since day one, uh, deployed a whole of government approach and decided to strategically visit and engage when he thought the time was right. I will note 
that a lot of work has gone on this past year, and it has been as of late that the mayor extended an invitation to the president to join, and the, the president is responding to that local invite, which I think is very appropriate. The EPA Administrator Michael Regan talking to reporters on Air Force One as they were flying to East Palestine, Ohio. On the ground there, meeting with the local officials, some remarks from the president about holding the railroad accountable. Well, there are acts of God. This was an act of greed that was 100 percent preventable. Let me say it again. An act of greed that was 100 percent preventable. We were pushing the railroads to take more precautions, to deal with breaking, to deal with a whole range of things that were not dealt with. Norfolk Southern failed its responsibility. We know multi-million dollar railroad companies transporting toxic chemicals have responsibility to do it safely. And again, Norfolk Southern failed. My administration was on the ground within hours, working closely with the governor, the mayor, the senators, the House members, community leaders, to make sure you have everything you need. My administration ordered Norfolk Southern to clean up the mess it created and ensure it was done right. That includes an executive order I signed to continue our priority to hold Norfolk Southern fully accountable for this disaster and any long-term effects that are able to be identified as time goes on. Not just here, but also in Darlington, Pennsylvania, where I just visited a few hours ago, an hour or so ago. Working with the state, we've tested the air, the water, the soil quality, deployed teams of health experts, provided emergency loans for local businesses. But it's not done yet. There's more to do. Today, I'm announcing the award of six National Institutes of Health grants to some of America's best research universities to study the short and long-term impacts of what happened here. President Joe Biden in East Palestine, Ohio. Earlier in the day, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg talked about the president's visit and what's been done since the toxic train derailment. Pete Buttigieg was at Meridian International Center in Washington. The president is there because uh, the mayor of East Palestine invited him to visit. And I think it's especially important right now because it's a chance to demonstrate that our administration's commitment to the people of East Palestine didn't end when all of the cameras and, and the media and political firestorm around that place ended a few weeks after the derailment, that we're in it for as long as it takes. And I think this will also be a chance just to show support for a great community. When I speak to people who I got to know when I visited about a year ago, uh, who I've kept in touch with, I really hear two things. One, uh, the community doesn't want to be defined by this. But two, they, they don't want to be forgotten, and they expect and deserve support for as long as it takes. And I think the president's visit uh, uh, goes to, to show that. Um, in terms of what we've done since, our agency was on the ground in, within the first few hours. But uh, the, the main part that the Department of Transportation has had is in responding to what happened by applying lessons with regard to railroad safety. And uh, that led to inspections, focused inspections of thousands of miles of track. It led to new regulations, including one that we recently issued that has to do with emergency escape breathing apparatus for personnel who are on trains. Uh, it led to a lot of pressure from us on the class one railroad companies, uh, which they have been partially responsive to, uh, to improve their practices. And what it has not led to but should 
is a bipartisan railway safety act. Uh, it has been filed. It was proposed uh, in just within weeks of that disaster. It is still waiting its turn in Congress. And again, it's bipartisan. There were Republican and Democratic co-sponsors, and yet it's just sitting there. What's holding it up? Turn. Great question. <laughs> Great. Could ask that about anything today, right? I mean, look, the, the railroad industry is certainly resisting this legislation. Uh, what's more frustrating to me is that members of Congress are resisting this legislation who had a lot to say mm -hmm. in the immediate aftermath of the crash, Shocker. but are nowhere to be found uh, when it comes time to get them on the record about right. the Bipartisan Railway Safety Act. I think now would be a good time. Yesterday would have been a good time, but now would be a very good time for these members right. to get it together. Because again, it's bipartisan, and it would include a number of measures that would strengthen the hand of my department when it comes to ensuring rail safety. N not just to do right by the people of East Palestine, but all the communities out mm -hmm. there wondering if they could be next. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg at the Meridian International Center in Washington. C-SPAN spoke about the situation in East Palestine, Ohio, and the president's visit one year after the freight train derailment with the toxic chemicals with Mike Lee, E&E news reporter. Well, exactly then, what has the White House done in this situation, even if this visit's taking a year later than the incident? So the, the Biden administration has stressed that this was caused by the railroad in Norfolk Southern and that uh, the railroad should be responsible for, for paying for the cleanup. The Environmental Protection Agency, uh, what's yeah. their role been in this since the accident last year? They're basically in charge of, of, of overseeing the cleanup and making sure you know Norfolk Southern does what it's supposed to do. Uh, exactly then, what, what's the White House, or at least the administration, expecting from Norfolk Summer? What would they like to see ultimately? Uh, they, they, you know, they want to see the, the chemicals cleaned up. They want to see long-term monitoring of, of the, the soil and water in the area. And then there's a lot of discussion about how to, how to uh, monitor people's health going forward, because a lot of people are concerned that they might not get sick, you know, they might get sick in a couple of years. Uh, even aside from the administration's efforts, has Congress taken any role in correcting at least the, the incident in Ohio or the larger issues of improving rail safety? Receiving. Um, yeah. A month or two after the, re the wreck happened, the two senators from Ohio plus the two senators from, from Pennsylvania, which is you know the, the neighboring state, uh, introduced a bill that was supposed to, to improve railroad safety. There, there's a lot of provisions in there that would that would address several long-standing issues with, with the railroads, uh, and that bill's been bottled up uh, basically since it was introduced. It passed one of the committees in, in the Senate, hasn't gotten a full uh, a vote in the full Senate, and it hasn't even gotten a, a committee hearing in the House. Why do you think that is? Uh, my colleagues have reported that, that uh, there was a lot of lobbying around it. Uh, you know, the, the uh, the railroads don't, you know, are, are cost conscious. They don't want to pay extra for, for some of the safety provisions and things like that. Uh, you've spent some time there in East Palestine, Mr. Lee. As far as the residents themselves, a year later, how how intense is the concern over the uh, the acts or the after effects of the accident? I, I was there last summer and, you know, the, there's, there's a split. There's a lot of people that, that are still concerned about What's going to happen to their town? Are their kids going to get sick? Is there, are they going to lose the value of their homes? Things like that. There's a lot of folks that just want to move on. Uh, when it comes to the larger issue of rail accidents, how often do these type of things occur? Th this was unique because it was, it was a derailment and a fire. And then there was a, 
there was the the sort of second effect where the railroad came in and burned off one of the cars. That was the the huge plume of smoke that got on the made all the headlines. Um, so that that's fairly rare, but the the derailments happen almost every day. Mike Lee, E and E news reporter on C-SPAN's Washington Journal program this morning. Wall Street today, the Dow down 145, Nasdaq down 130, S&P down 24. From Associated Press, a New York judge ruled Friday against Donald Trump imposing a $364 million penalty over what the judge ruled was a years-long scheme to dupe banks and others with financial statements that inflated the former president's wealth. Trump also was barred from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for three years. However, the judge backed away from an earlier ruling that would have dissolved the former president's companies. Reaction from New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat. Today, justice has been served. Today, we prove that no one is above the law. No matter how rich, powerful, or politically connected you are, everyone must play by the same rules. We have a responsibility to protect the integrity of the marketplace. And for years, Donald Trump engaged in deceptive business practices and tremendous fraud. Donald Trump falsely, knowingly, inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself, his family, and to cheat the system. Donald Trump may have authored the art of the deal, but he perfected the art of the steal. This long-running fraud was intentional, egregious, illegal. And he did it all of this, he did all of this with the help of the other defendants, his two adult sons and senior executives at the Trump Organization. And so, after 11 weeks of trial, we showed the staggering extent of his fraud and exactly how Donald Trump and the other defendants deceived banks, insurance companies, and other financial institutions for their own personal gain. We proved just how much Donald Trump, his family, and his company unjustly benefited from his fraud. Today, the court once again ruled in our favor and in favor of every hard-working American who plays by the rules. New York Attorney General Letitia James at a news conference in New York City. And reaction to the civil fraud trial verdict from former President Donald Trump at his home and club in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. It's a very sad day for in my opinion, the country. A New York State judge just ruled that he's crooked as you can get. And a lot of people expected something like this, but not for the amount. Uh, but this is a very dishonest man. This is a man that's been overturned already on this case four times. But a crooked New York State judge just ruled that I have to pay a fine of $355 million for having built a perfect company. Uh, great cash, great buildings, great everything. It affects New York. It's mostly talking about New York, where we have a totally corrupt attorney general. She campaigned on the fact that I will get Trump, I will get Trump. Everybody's seen it. Letitia James, they've all seen it. Well, we'll be appealing. But more important than that, this is Russia. This is China. This is the same game. All comes out of the DOJ. It all comes out of Biden. It's a witch hunt against his political opponent the likes of which our country has never seen before. You see it in third world countries, banana republics, but you don't see it here. 
In a story from the Washington Post, the Securities and Exchange Commission has approved the merger proposal of former President Donald Trump's media startup with a special purpose acquisition company, a critical step for a long-delayed deal that would make the owner of Trump's website, Truth Social, a publicly traded company and unlock $300 million in investor funds. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is continuing her campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, looking beyond the next contest, March 24th in her home state, to Super Tuesday on March 5th, when 15 states will be holding presidential primaries. Texas is one of those, and Nikki Haley held a rally in Dallas Thursday night, comparing herself to Donald Trump. Whether it was the night of New Hampshire or whether it was after this court case, at no point did he talk about the American people. At no point did he talk about the fact that we were $34 trillion in debt. Yes. At no point did he talk about that only 31% of eighth graders were proficient in reading. At no point did he talk about an open border. At no point did he talk about the lawlessness in our cities. And at no point did he talk about the wars around the world. All he did was talk about himself. And you think about the fact that if anybody wants to get something done in America, you first have to win. And you look at any one of those general election polls, he doesn't beat Biden. He's down by five. He's down by seven. He's down by nine. On his best day, he's even. It's margin of error. I'm in every one of those same general election polls, and I defeat Biden by up to 17 points. You win by that big of a margin, that's bigger than presidency, that's House, that's Senate, that's governorships, that's school board, that's transforming our entire government. But you win by double digits, that's a mandate to stop the wasteful spending and get our economy back on track. That's a mandate to get our kids reading again and back to the basics in education. That's a mandate to secure our borders with no more excuses. That's a mandate for law and order back in our cities. That's a mandate for a strong America that prevents wars that we can all be proud of. Don't you want that? Nikki Haley, Republican presidential candidate in Dallas, Texas, Thursday night. Texas and the other 14 states holding presidential primaries on Super Tuesday, March 5th, account for about one third of the delegates needed to win the nomination for president in the Republican Party. Story from NBC News. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, announced Friday that he is not running for president after spending months mulling a bid that would have shaken up the 2024 campaign. He said, I just don't think it's the right time. We're on a real teetering situation here that could go either way. Democracy is at stake right now. He said he doesn't want to be a spoiler. Manchin, 76 years old, had said last November that he would not seek re-election to his Senate seat this year, leading leading to speculation that he would run for the White House as an independent or as a third-party candidate. That was from NBC News. Senator Manchin made the announcement at West Virginia State University in Morgantown. I've decided that I can make a real difference, and I truly can, with my experience that I've had working with my daughter, 
working with people that we have around the country not to set up Americans together by giving all of my effort towards that. I will not be seeking a third party run. I will not be involved in a presidential run. I will be involved in making sure that we secure a president that has the knowledge and has the passion and has the ability to bring this country together. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia at West Virginia State University, Morgantown today. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's free evening newsletter, Word for Word, and get the stories making headlines in Washington. Send your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org connect. And a programming note that there'll be no Washington Today on Monday, President's Day holiday, but we're back on Tuesday, February 20th at 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern. Have a good night, weekend, and holiday.